Hey, this is Jordan Conroy, and you're listening to Tank Talk, presented by KG Tropicals. Thank you, Jordan. Welcome, folks, to another episode of Tank Talk, presented by KG Tropicals. I am your host, John Hudson from KG Tropicals. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I certainly am. The weather here in King George is beautiful today. Maybe not as nice as it was the last weekend when I was in Florida Keys. We're going to talk all about that today. But uh, the weather is gorgeous here today. I think spring has finally arrived. In today's episode, oh Lord, we got so much to talk about. I'm not going to sit here and tell you every single minute of our vacation that we had, which I absolutely could because, oh, it was unbelievable. But we're going to kind of go through that real quick. But what I want to focus on today is our trip to the fish farm. It is Old World Exotic Fish in Homestead, Florida where we stopped to take a tour and, and spend some time with Leif de Mason. If you don't know the name, he is a legend in the African cichlid world. We had a fantastic time. I wish I could have been there all day, and Leif would have certainly allowed us to do that, but you know, we had places we had to go and all that. So I'm going to tell you all about our visit to that fish farm, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the company and uh, you know what he does there and everything else. And it was just a, it was a wonderful time. So I can't wait to share all of that with you. We're also going to talk about the trip as a whole. And if you stay tuned for John's World today, all of my Bloodline fans, listen to John's World today because I'm going to tell you all about the places that we went that had to do with the show and all of that. It was unbelievable. That was the whole reason why we went there was because of that show. So I think you'll get a kick out of that if you are a fan of Bloodlines. Let me, let me talk briefly about what went on last weekend to kind of set up, uh, the, the trip to Old World Exotics. So if you were listening a few weeks back, you remember I talked about how my, how I got heavily involved in the Netflix show Bloodline and I told my sister about it and she fell in love with the show just as quickly as I did. Lisa fell in love with it. My brother-in-law, we were all four just completely obsessed over that show. And she decided, my sister decided that she wanted, her and my brother-in-law wanted to take Lisa and I down to the Florida Keys, which is where that show is filmed, for a vacation. We haven't gone on a vacation in a long time. Basically, since we started KG Tropicals, we haven't even left King George hardly, except one time to go to uh, our Marines uh, graduation from boot camp, but we haven't left King George. I mean, we've, you know, we've been stuck here running the business and everything else. And so she said, you know what? We're going to take you down to the Florida Keys. And not only are we going to go there for a vacation, but we're also going to stay at the resort where the show was filmed. So that's where we were last weekend. That is why I missed last week's episode. And I apologize about that, but you know, it happens. And I, I promise you folks, I'm doing my best to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But when you have your sister tell you, Hey, I'm going to take you to the Florida Keys. You don't have to pay for a thing. We're going to go down there and have a blast. I'm sorry, but that kind of takes precedence over a podcast. <laughs> as important as this podcast is to me, I, I just wasn't able to get back. We actually came back on Tuesday and we didn't get home till late and it just wouldn't have worked out to, to do it. So we were exhausted and all that. So anyway, one of the coolest things about this trip, and I'm not going to tell you all about the vacation. I mean, because you don't want to hear that. I mean, I believe me, I could tell you a lot. I could tell you about a lot of first time things 
that that happened on this trip. One of them being it was the very first time Lisa ever got on an airplane. And I'm going to be honest with you, she suffers from claustrophobia and it's it's pretty intense. I mean, she's had some episodes of claustrophobia since her and I've been together. And so we were very worried going in whether or not it was going to be something that she could do. And she handled it very well. Her first flight went off without a hitch. The the ride home, there was a storm, so it was a little bumpy. She got a little nervous, but she did really good. I'm really proud of her for, for sticking it out. That's a big deal. If you're, I'm not going to say how old she is, but if you are a grown adult and you have yet to fly in an airplane, it can be a pretty scary thing. And she did really well with that. We also did a lot of things on the vacation that I never saw Lisa ever doing. We went out on kayaks. We went snorkeling. We did all these things that Lisa can't swim. I mean, I'm just, I probably shouldn't be telling you that, but she can't. She never, she never learned how. And so to go out on a kayak was something that I never thought she would ever do, but she did. And she only fell in once, but the water was only about three feet deep. So, you know. It didn't hurt anything, but I've got to actually tell you about that story because it was fascinating. We got on the kayaks at the resort where we were staying, and we went probably three miles, mile and a half out, mile and a half back. We were on these kayaks forever. I got a sunburn that you wouldn't even imagine. And the reason why she fell in was because we saw, first of all, I'm from Virginia, okay? And the anywhere where there's water around here, the water is dark mud brown. It's terrible. I don't care if you go to a lake. Or if you go to a river, if you go to the ocean, which is just a few hours away, it's it's nasty. I mean, the water is just horrible. You go down to the Florida Keys and if, you know, the water's eight feet deep and you can see the bottom. I mean, it was something that we're definitely not used to. And when we were on the kayaks, like I said, the water was three, four feet deep, and which is why I felt okay with Lisa doing it, not being able to swim. Okay, I wouldn't have taken her out into an area that was 20 feet deep. You got to go way out in the Keys to get to water that's 20 feet deep. But anyway, we saw the most unbelievable stingray and you could see them clear as day. I don't know what kind of stingray it was. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with the saltwater stingrays, but it's the kind that is shaped almost like a sideways diamond, if that makes sense. And he had speckles all over him. He was gorgeous and he was right under us and he kind of flew away. And I was following him with with my eyes, not in the boat, but I was watching him swim away. And Lisa just leaned over to try to get a look at him and leaned a little bit too far. And next thing you know, I look over and her boat's upside down. And uh, (laughs) it was not fun getting back up into getting her back up into the kayak. But, uh, you know, she can't swim. She went into the ocean on a kayak and fell over and handled it like a champ. I'm not going to tell you the words that were said and all of that, but it was, it was pretty, pretty crazy, but she handled herself well. And, uh, and she's actually, even after that, she wants to buy kayaks and, and go out on the lakes and stuff around here. She's really excited about that. She absolutely loved it. And so did I, I could have done without the sunburn. Maybe I should have just put on some sunscreen, who knows? But anyway, that's about all I want to tell you about the trip because I don't want this episode to be all about our trip to the keys. I've been talking about it for a while and and all I will say is that it was one of the most unbelievable experiences of my entire life. And that's that's the most I can say about it. I mean, it was unbelievable 
The islands down there are very simple. It's not extravagant, but it's just, it's a tropical paradise is what that place is. And one of the coolest things that I ever saw was the, the keys are so small. The islands are, are so narrow that when you're driving down the highway, which there's just one highway that goes straight through from Key Largo all the way down to Key West, it's called the Overseas Highway. There are parts of that where you are on land on that highway and either side of your car that you look out the window, you see water. And I'm not talking about on a bridge. I'm talking you're on the land. There's houses and buildings and businesses everywhere. And behind them on both sides of you, you see water. That was a cool experience. I'd never seen anything like that before other than you know, being on a bridge. You know, you look out either side, you see water. But in this case, that's how thin the island is. I don't know how wide it is. I never really inquired about that, but it's not very wide. You could walk. Uh, we were on Isle Murata which is like a very long, skinny key. And you could walk from the Florida Bay side of the island over to the Atlantic side of the island, and it would probably take two minutes. I mean, it's just a just a quick little trip right across the island. It's really small, and that was really neat. But I don't want to talk about this throughout the entire episode because you would just get bored. This is not a podcast about vacationing, so... I do want to talk, though, about the trip to the fish farm. I had so much fun there. We spent a couple hours there, and I want to tell you all about that. So today we're talking all about our visit to Old World Exotic Fish Incorporated down in Homestead, Florida. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I never really thought I would have the opportunity to do it. But since we had our trip down to the Florida Keys... It was actually very simple to do it because we flew into Miami and then we had to drive about 90 miles to the resort on Isla Mirada where we were staying and we passed right by the fish farm. So it made sense for us to swing through there. I emailed the owner of the company a, a few weeks back and, and told him we were coming to town and he said, yeah, come on through. We'll give you the grand tour and show you what we got going on here. And so this was something that I wanted to do for a long time, and I was so excited that we were actually able to make it happen. My sister and brother-in-law went with us, and they enjoyed it too. I mean, they don't have anything to do with the aquarium hobby. They don't have a tank in their house, but they had a great time there too. So that ought to show you what this place really is. Now, what I want to do is just kind of openly talk about it. I, I have some hot button items jotted down here that I want to make sure that I cover, but I just want to to go on a little trip with you and explain to you what this place was like and, and how much fun we had there. I want to tell you a little bit about the company first. I'm not doing an advertisement for Old World. I, I don't even need to do an advertisement. It's not like you could go on their website and order fish for the, from them. They sell to retailers. They don't sell direct to the consumer. So there's no need to do a commercial for them. But all of us in this hobby, we love to know where our fish come from. We love to know about their origins and things like that. And so when you get the opportunity to go to a fish farm, it's it's a lot of fun. And that's why we're talking about this today, not for a commercial for Old World. So Old World Exotic Fish was started by a man by the name of Leif DeMason. You may have heard about him. He's been on television. He's written books. He is associated with all of the major players out there in the African cichlid world. 
He knows them all. He is a legend in this world of African cichlids, and he is partly responsible for us even having these fish in our aquariums. So he's somebody that if you don't know a whole lot about him, you might want to look it up and uh, look him up. He's not hard to find anywhere. There's tons of stuff about him on the internet, and you can find out. He's a very fascinating guy, and he has done everything to do with these fish, including 18 trips to Africa to, for collecting and, and exploring and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this guy is very well versed in the African cichlid world. And he's one of these guys that when he talks, you know, he's like EF Hutton. You just sit there, you shut your mouth and you open your ears and you just listen to whatever it is that, that he has to say. So his company, like I said, they are an importer of African cichlids and they're also a breeder and they breed in a big way. We're going to talk about that as we go forward here. So, you know, you might have fish in your tank that came from Old World Exotics and you don't even know it. I mean, they're one of the major players in this hobby and, and in the African cichlid trade, not only here in the U.S., but they ship all over. They ship all over the world. So, you know, he's he's got a good hold on things. Now, the farm is located in Homestead, Florida, like I said, which is way, 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 way down at the bottom of the state in the tropical area of the state. You may have heard of Homestead uh, if you're, you know, a little older and not one of these youngsters listening. But you may remember Hurricane Andrew that came through in 1992. Uh, that hurricane pretty much decimated Homestead. I mean, there were other fish farms down there. There's tons of fish farms down there, but there were others that were a complete and total loss from Hurricane Andrew. Uh, there was some damage Leif was telling me about. They, they also did get hit by Katrina, but it wasn't nearly as bad as other areas were hit by Hurricane Katrina. So, so this place is right in Hurricane Alley, and that's unfortunate, but, um, but it's right down there at the bottom of the state, almost as far as you can go you know, just before you get down to the Everglades and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's way down there, very hot, very tropical, very humid, but it is a beautiful area. And fish farming is one of the major, major industries there in Homestead because of the climate. So this is a farm that is not open to the public. And to be honest, if you didn't know it was there, if you weren't looking for it or following it on a GPS, you would drive right past it and not even know that that's what it was because, you know, they've got things situated in a way they're not trying to hide from anybody, but the way it's situated, you just wouldn't even know that there's a fish farm there. So it's not a store. It's not a public aquarium. It's not even open to the public, but for people like me who buy a lot of fish from Leif, you know, he'll, he'll allow us to walk through there, not because we're anything special, but because we buy fish from them. We're a customer. Uh, they sell to the pet stores. They don't sell direct to the public. So it's one of those things that, you know, if you're just an African cichlid hobbyist, you may never get the opportunity to go down there and do that. Like I said, you know, he's not a public aquarium. So again, if you haven't heard about Leif, if you watch the show, fish tank kings and i mean you probably did because you're if you're a big enough fish enthusiast to where you're listening to a podcast about fish keeping you probably watched the show fish tank kings they did an episode where they they showcased leif's farm they went down there and i i don't 
I don't remember the people's names, but the guy and the girl, they went in one of the ponds and they were having a contest to see who could catch the most fish and all this stuff. That was there at Old World. They didn't show the whole facility, just a very small amount of it, but it was still a cool episode. And, and that was my first time ever seeing anything actually filmed there on the, on the, uh, on the farm. So what else do we have to talk about with, with Leif? Leif has been keeping fish, a little brief history about him. He has been keeping fish since 1969. I promise you, most of the people listening to this weren't even alive in 1969. I know I wasn't. I'm not making a, an old joke there, but he started out as a fish keeper, very young, and he got into breeding angels, and then he went to college. He comes back, and he starts getting involved in African cichlids in the 70s, which is when they were just starting to be imported into the States. They're, they were nothing like they were now. They were just coming over, and he was one of those first people that started dealing in African cichlids when they first came over. And then, of course, we all know they completely blew up and became one of the most popular aquarium fish. So thank you, Leif, for that. Now, there's no way I can sit here and, and talk about Leif and, and not have it be a disservice to him. I mean, this guy has been in this industry for so long. He's done so many things. He's got a fish named after him. I mean, the Demasoni is named after Leif Demason. I mean, he is one of these people in this hobby that is just bigger than anything I could ever explain on a brief history about him in the in this podcast. So I'm afraid to talk a whole lot more about him because I, I don't want it to be a disservice to him. But just know that this guy has been in the hobby for a very long time. He's one of the biggest names in the hobby, and he runs one of the more successful farms in this industry. So that's really all you need to know about him. I mean, you don't have to look far to find his name. So let's start out uh, talking a little bit about when we got there and what we saw and all this thing and give you a kind of a layout of the land of, of how the whole place works. I'm not going to give away any kind of secrets or anything like that. Not that there really is any, but not going to go that far. But, you know, we'll take just kind of a walk through of the farm. Now, let me just say this real quick, and, and then I want to get into a quick promo, and then we'll go for our little tour. I did not take any video footage or even any pictures while I was there. Now, this was not told to me by Leif. This was not a rule. You know, you can't video. You can't do. There wasn't anything like that. It's just one of those things where I was so caught up in the moment, and so was Lisa. We enjoyed ourselves so much, and by the time we had gone through the whole thing, Leif was, was gracious enough, gracious enough to spend a couple hours with us. I didn't want to take up any more of his time and, you know, walk through and video all this stuff and all. I didn't want to mess with all of that. So unfortunately, the only information that I'm going to be able to give you is memories that I have in my head and things that I can recall about the trip. I really wanted to do some videos and stuff down there, but we were kind of in a hurry to get down to the resort. We had another, you know, hour and a half or so drive. It was hot and we didn't want to take up much more of Leif's time. So unfortunately, I don't have any actual footage from down there. But what I do have is the okay from Leif to come on the show one day. I don't know when it's going to be, but I talked to him about being a guest on this podcast and he did say that he would do it. For the most part, he said he would do it. It wasn't like he locked himself in, but he said he would be open to doing it. 
He's got a very busy schedule. The guy works more hours than you and I combined. So I don't know how we're going to work that out, but he did say that he would do it. So I can't wait for that. I will definitely keep you updated on that. Okay, so we're 30 minutes in and I'm finally getting to the real guts of this episode. Sorry for running my mouth as long as I have today, but I'm excited. This is a fun topic for me. I had such a great time at the farm and I wish I could go back. I wish I could spend a few days there. And Leif even said there was a, there has been people that have come down there and spent days at the farm. Probably people wanting to learn how the whole thing works, but I could have definitely spent an entire day there. It was a lot of fun, but let's, let's talk about what the place is. First of all, like I said before, it's not open to the public. So it's not set up for a presentation to the public, if that makes sense. So what you're not going to find when you walk into this place, it doesn't look like a public aquarium, <laughs> you know, one of these elaborate, these big, gorgeous, beautiful displays. It's nothing like that at all. This is a working farm where they store imports that they've brought in. They keep them around for a little bit before they sell them because they want to make sure that they're healthy and they're not carrying any disease or anything like that. So it's a holding facility as well as a breeding facility. So its I, I don't mean to be insulting when I say this in any way, but it's not the prettiest thing in the world, but it's not meant to be. So I don't think that that's really an insult. It's its a functional, very nicely working, very efficient fish farm. That's what it is. And so when you go in there, it's very raw, if that's that's probably a good way of describing it. Everything is very raw. There's water everywhere, and there is fish everywhere. And that's, of course, what we go there to see. So the 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 property breaks down into a couple of different areas, and we're going to talk about each one, but it's the the farm as a whole is five acres. Now, when you hear five acres, you might be thinking, well, that's not that big. I mean, my house is sitting on five acres. But when you, when you think about five acres, perfectly flat, wide open, and it's all full of ponds and vaults and, and all of this, that's a lot of fish tanks. So there's over 600 vaults there. We're going to talk about vaults in a minute, but these are huge tanks for storing fish and also raising fry. There's 85 to, to, I don't know, he didn't give me an exact number, but something like 85 to 90 in-ground ponds. These are huge. I don't know how many gallons they are, but they're massive. They're like 30, 40 feet long, maybe 18 to 20 feet wide, and pretty deep. I mean, they're huge. They're like swimming pools. And there's, I don't know, 80 to 90 of them on the farm spread out throughout the whole thing, and they're all in rows. It's really cool the way... He did it and they're all hooked up to a, their, you know, a filtration system that kind of goes through the whole place. We're going to talk about that more, but that just gives you an idea of the scale of this place. The, the vaults and the ponds, 600 of these vaults. I mean, that's a lot. And, and again, we're going to talk about what the vaults are here in a minute, but then there's also an indoor facility. Now this indoor facility has over a thousand glass aquariums and it's also got i didn't get a number from them but it's also got a a a lot more of these vaults the vaults we're going to get into a little bit more detail but they're basically big concrete boxes 
that are used for they're not used for raising fish, but Leif uses them to raise fish and, and house fish in them. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but they're huge. They're like eight feet long by maybe three and a half, four feet wide and three feet deep or so. They're really big. And so he had a whole bunch of these inside the building and then 600 of them outside. I mean, there's just tons and tons of these things. And so the, the building itself is where he houses fish that he has imported and he cleans them out in there, you know, to make sure that they're not carrying any parasites. But he also raises a lot of fry. You can't take fry that are a quarter inch long and throw them into a 20,000 gallon pond. They wouldn't do too well in there. So he raises them for a good long while in the smaller glass aquariums and and i don't know i didn't ask leif but they're probably 20 to 30 gallons the the majority of the glass aquariums that he has in the building and so when you walk into this building it's just row after row after row after row of these glass aquariums and they're stacked very high and they're just full of the most beautiful fish you've ever seen and this is also the area where He controls inventory, if that makes sense. They will go out and they'll pull from the ponds or from the vaults, which he calls them vats, but you'll understand in a little bit why I call them vaults. They'll pull from the vaults and put them into these aquariums, and then he will put them on the list for sale, the list of availability to the stores. So the the tanks inside the building also provide an area for inventory control. So when you walk through this, you see everything from breeders to fry to imported fish to fish that are for sale to fish that have grown a little bit, but they're not quite ready to be put into one of the ponds. I mean, fish from every different angle. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It would be comparing it to like my old shop, but it's way bigger and there's way more fish. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many he has in there. And he's got tons of breeding groups of things like goldhead compressiceps and things like that. I mean, there's just, it's fascinating to see all of these fish that he has in there. And, and I don't remember this exactly, but I think the majority of the Tanganyikan fish that he breeds, he breeds in there rather than out in the ponds or the vaults or anything like that. So there is a lot of activity going on in this building. It's a huge building. It's broken up into different sections, so it's not like a big wide open warehouse, but it's it's a huge building and there's just tanks everywhere. There's water everywhere. I mean, it's just a it's a fish keeper's paradise. Now these tanks, they're not gorgeous with, you know, 3D backgrounds and LED lights and sand substrates and rock formations. There's nothing like that. I mean, they're not set to be decorative, but the fish stand out like you wouldn't believe and like I said, it's a fish keeper's paradise. You, you can't, you can't describe it any other way. And they just go on and on and on. We only, when we pulled up, we could only see, you know, like the end of the building. So we didn't really have any way of gauging how big this building was. We started out in the office and then we went out into the, he calls the building the hatchery. We went out into there and he shows us all these and we're like, wow, that's a lot of tanks. Look at all these fish. And then he says, okay, come through here. We go through into another room that's bigger than the first one. And there's even more tanks and more vaults and 
more water everywhere. And then he's like, okay, come through here. And it's like you keep going through into these new rooms where it's just these huge racks and just all, just the amount of tanks is unthinkable how many they have in there. And it makes sense because of the amount of fish that they have going through there. So it's, it was unreal and it was overwhelming to be honest with you because there's so much to see and there's so many tanks that it was hard to keep up with what it all was. So we walked through there. I mean, we walked through the building and it just, it was like, it ends up in a big circle. It's like you go through these rooms and go through these areas and then you end up right back where you started again. And then we went outside and outside is where the true magic is. Now it's a completely different experience because you're looking at all of the fish from the top rather than through the glass aquariums because these are all the ponds and the vaults. So it is a different experience, but it's one that I love. I mean, I've never had a fish pond in my backyard. I've always dreamt of having one, and one day I will have one. But I love doing that. I love looking at the fish from above. I think it's really cool. And when you go outside at Old World, that is what you do, and there are fish everywhere. <laughs> there is, like I said, 600 of these Vaults. Now, I've been telling you this whole time I'm going to explain what these vaults are. Okay, here it is. I don't know if it's this way all over the country, but I know in Virginia and I'm, I'm assuming in Florida. I don't, I don't know. I'm, it might even be a nationwide thing. You're not allowed when, when a loved one dies and you have a funeral and you bury them in the cemetery, you, you don't just put the casket in the ground and bury it. You can't do that because the caskets will eventually deteriorate and, and, cave in and you'd have these big ruts on, on top of every single grave. And so what they do is they require you to actually put the casket into a vault. It's a concrete vault built to the size of the casket. And they, they put the vault down in the ground and then you don't see this because they put the casket above it and you don't see what's down below, but it's all the way down there at the bottom of the hole. And then they place the casket inside that vault. They put the concrete lid on top of that, and then they bury that. And so this prevents the cave-in of the graves. So that's what these vaults are, and that's why I keep calling them vaults. Leif calls them vats. I don't think it matters either way. You know what it is that I'm talking about. But that's that's what these things are, and Leif has repurposed them to use them as these ponds for the fish. And so they're square, they're, you know, rectangle boxes. And when you go outside of this farm, they're just everywhere. And they are all numbered and they're all in line. And it's just, it's unbelievable to see this. And one of the other things that I want to talk about was the, the way that he has all of these filtered because it's, absolutely fascinating to me. I'm going to touch on it after I get through the rest of the the kind of walkthrough of all of this, but the way these are filtered, I, I never even thought of doing these things this way or doing anything this way. But just remember, I told you there's water everywhere. So these vaults, 600 of them, I mean, it's overwhelming when you think about it. They're just everywhere. It's just a sea of these vaults, they go as far as the eye can see, and they're all full of the most unbelievable fish. Now, what I found 
and I didn't look in every single one, but it seemed to me like the majority of the fish that were in the vaults were the larger fish that he sells than we sell to you. Everything you can imagine. I'm not going to start going through all of the different types of fish that were in these vaults, but basically anything you can think of, they had in there. They breed over 200 different types of fish in this facility. I mean, just think about that. I remember when Lisa and I were back in our garage and we were breeding about 25 and it was just completely overwhelming. They've got 200 different types of fish that they're breeding. And so you can imagine if you, if you think about why they would have that many vaults, if you get a huge group of fish together and they're all breeding and they're actively breeding, you could basically be pulling fry every day. I mean, it would just be a nonstop flow of fry. They got to have somewhere to put them. So that's why there's over a thousand different vessels or 1600, 1700 different places where they can put these fry to raise them up. I mean, when you're breeding 200 different kinds of fish, you need that many. So 200 different kinds of fish, mostly Malawi, I think is what he's breeding. I think the majority of the uh, imports that he gets are Tanganyikans and Madagascar and, and Victorians and stuff like that. But he does breed some Tanganyikans, but I think the majority of the fish that he breeds are Malawi. But I could totally be wrong about that. We didn't get into those details. But he did say 200 different kinds of fish he was breeding. And he was also saying that sometimes he gets overrun with fish, and so they have to actually stop production of those fish, which basically means that in the tank where all of the breeding is taking place, they just don't strip any females for a while because they have an abundance of the fry. So they just leave them alone, let nature take its course. Maybe some of the fry will survive and eventually become breeders themselves. Who knows? But that's what they'll have to do. And so they go through cycles of, okay, we're going to take a break on these and we'll continue producing these others for the next few months because we're running low on those or whatever. It's pretty fascinating to hear him talk about the, the, the way they do it. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. He, there was a guy there while we were there that was going through pulling fish and stripping females and all of that. It was pretty neat. And I, I feel bad for not remembering his name, but he was out there sweating. He was working hard. So with all of these vats or vaults, uh, you then walk through to where the ponds are. And these ponds, like I described earlier, they're like swimming pools. I mean, they're probably four feet deep or so and at least 20 feet wide, 30, 40 feet long. These are huge ponds. And this was probably where we had our most fun was looking in these ponds because we walk over to this one pond and he says, this is our pond full of Venustus. Anybody who knows me knows that Venustus is one of my favorites. It probably is one of yours too. There were Venustus in there that were bigger than I'd ever seen. And it, you would expect that. They're in a pond that's probably, I said 20,000 gallons earlier. That's ridiculous. Probably a couple thousand gallons anyway. You put them in these huge bodies of water and the water is perfect for these fish as far as the pH and the temperature and all that goes. They're going to grow to be massive. And there were some of the biggest Venusas I've ever seen in that tank, or that in that pond. And there was probably 300 of them. I mean, it was ridiculous how many Venusas there were in there. And then you move to the one next to it, and it's full of red zebras. And you move to the one next to it, and it's full of 
platinum zebras and you move over here and they're albino flavescent peacocks and then you move over i mean it was just crazy for an african cichlid lover you're walking through there and you see these fish and they're bigger than you've ever seen because these are in the ponds and they're the breeders and you know they're they're as big as their full potential could get them it is magnificent to see these fish in that environment and i literally could have spent 15 minutes at each pond, just staring into the ponds. I mean, they were unbelievable. And he actually had two that were full of the Morii blue dolphins, which I am a huge fan of. And again, there were blue dolphins in there that I, I couldn't believe how big they were. I mean, I've, I've had tons and tons of blue dolphins throughout my days. I've never seen them as big. I mean, I'm talking like a foot. These are huge. Blue dolphins, absolutely gorgeous. And the whole pond is full of them. And there's the brightest blue and you're looking at them from the top and the water is crystal clear. It was, oh Lord, I, I literally could have spent the entire day just looking in these ponds and they're just a row of them all the way from one end of the property, all the way down to the other. And it's just, it's overwhelming when you look at them. There's so many of these ponds that have these fish in them. And again, I'm not going to mention every single kind of fish that there was because there's just way too many for me to say, but it was totally overwhelming. And one of the fascinating things to me was you go through and now I guess this is natural. It's his business. This is where he makes his living. Leif didn't even have to think about it. He would look in the tank. This is blah, blah, blah. This is blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was like, it was just in his brain. He knew exactly what was in every single pond. I would say to him, do you have flavescent peacocks? And he'd be like, yeah, they're in the pond, the fourth one down on the right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he knew where everything was. These ponds, the, the vats are labeled. They have numbers painted on them, but the ponds aren't. I mean, it's not like they put signs up to say what was in each pond, but it was unreal. He had a few of these ponds that were full of nothing but Tanganyikans. And yes, there was a tank full of unbelievable frontosas, huge, gigantic frontosas. And it was at the frontosa pond that Leif said something to me that, that stuck with me. And it, and it reminded me so much of myself. And that's why I appreciated it as much as I did. We look in this one tank or one pond. I, I apologize. I keep saying tank. And there was, uh, a whole bunch of some kind of fish. I don't remember what it was. And then there was probably two dozen frontosas and they were giant. I mean, they were as big as I've ever seen and they were old and you, you could see, you could look at them and you could tell they were old timers. They had some wrinkles and they had some spots on them. And you know, you, you know what a fish looks like when it gets old and you could just look at them and you could tell the water was so clear. You could tell that they were old fish. They had seen some days and Leif said, yeah, those, those frontosas in there are really old. I just, I don't kill fish. I don't believe in it. I don't like doing that. I, I just, you know, if they get real old, I'll, I'll put them somewhere and I'll just let them live the rest of their days in those ponds. I, I don't have the heart to kill them. And that meant a lot to me. I mean, if you've listened to anything, if you've watched anything that I've done, you know, that I am that kind of person too. I, I don't just dispose of fish. It's, it's just not in my nature to do that. And to hear 
that Leif was, is one of those people too. That fascinated me. I, I was really thrilled to hear that. And in fact, there was a fish out of the water. It was a frontosa. It had been dead for a while. And I could tell how disappointed he was. I don't know how the fish got out of the pond. It might have jumped. It, I don't know. There's a pretty big ledge. I don't know how it would have gotten over the ledge. It's not a bird because the entire facility is covered up with nets. I don't know how this fish got out of the pond. But you could see the disappointment in his face. You could tell he was very upset that this fish was dead outside of the pond. But let me just tell you this on the topic of dead fish. This is a functioning business that Lisa and I went to. We went to this business on a normal working day. They did not prepare for us. They did not roll out the red carpet for us. It was nothing like that. We intruded on them in a normal working day. And in the thousands of bodies of water that I looked into in that facility, I never saw one dead fish. Not one. Not in one of the ponds. Not in the trenches dug underground. We're going to tell, talk about that in a second. Not in the aquariums. Nowhere except for the one that was outside of the tank in the grass that looked like it had been dead for you know, a while, maybe a day. I mean, that was the only dead fish. But in the water, I never saw one. And that is impressive to me. That tells you of the quality of fish that this guy has. That tells you of the quality of the system that he has in place to house these fish. And it also tells you that the water down there in Florida is perfect for keeping African cichlids. The water table in Florida, in that area of Florida, is so high. It's only like four to five feet below ground. You hit water. So there's an endless supply of water and it is pristine. It is absolutely perfect for keeping African cichlids. So they got it made down there. You, you wonder why the farms are down in Florida. Well, that's why. Not only is the environment perfect and they don't have to worry about heating a building or anything like that, but also the water is perfect. So I was impressed to see not one dead fish. And like I said, it's not like Leif told one of his guys, you know, go through, make sure there's no dead fish because these VIPs are coming. No, we're not VIPs. And they didn't do any of that. It was just, there's just no dead fish. I mean, they know what they're doing over there and they have a great system in place. So I want to talk a little bit about the filtration system. This is something that was fascinating to me. I, I know I keep saying that word, but I was fascinated by the whole trip. The filtration system that they had there is one that I would say is the most natural way I've ever seen for a filtration system. They use the earth to filter the water in this facility. It is unbelievable the way they do it. And I'm going to try to describe it. And I'm pretty sure I understand how the whole system works. So work with me here and, uh, and, and you'll hopefully be able to follow along with the way it is. So what they have throughout the entire facility, the, the interior building, the ponds, the vaults, everything, what they have is they have these trenches that are dug in the ground that run down the rows of the the tanks. And the the ground there, when you dig through the, the topsoil and you get to hard earth, it's coral. So they dig these trenches, and I 
I didn't ask Leif, but I, I mean, I, I think I know just from knowing that area, they didn't have to, you know, do this and then put concrete into these trenches. They just basically dug these trenches and that is what it is because there's so much coral and, and everything underneath the soil there that it's just, again, it's just a natural trench right there. And basically the tanks would drain into these trenches and the trenches all lead over to these really big collection ponds. And it basically gets absorbed down into the earth and the earth filters this water. And he had five different pumps throughout the facility. We saw one of them. And these pumps are, are basically like well pumps that pull water straight from the ground, which the water table is only like five feet down. You can look down the pipe and see where the water table is, pulls water from the earth and distributes it throughout all of these tanks. That's the filtration system. I mean, you're used to seeing these elaborate recirculating systems where the water goes from the tanks and goes through sponges and down through this thing and up through this tower and trickles down through all of these bioballs and then goes over and then it's redistributed. Through. No, this is a filtration system that uses the earth to filter the water. I was mesmerized by this. And the coolest thing about it, they have these wooden walkways that they build over top of these trenches so you don't fall down in them, obviously. And you can see through the walkways down into the water. And there's fish down there. There's fish swimming through these trenches. It's the coolest thing ever. They get there a lot of different ways. It could be that one of them jumps out of the tank and then ends up in the trenches. And then he did start talking about tilapia. There was a lot of tilapia down in there, and and I'm not clear on how they got in there, but you go down to like the one of the large collection ponds, and it's really cool because there's a ton of fish in there in these collection ponds, and these fish that are in the collection ponds basically have the whole facility to roam around because they can swim through the trenches that go under the entire facility. It's so cool you'll be standing there looking into one of the vaults and you're like, oh, look at those, I don't know, fluorescent peacocks. I don't know why I keep saying those, but look at those. Aren't those so pretty? And you look down below your feet and there's fish swimming underneath you. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I think it's an absolutely genius way of circulating the water throughout this facility. And what can I say? I mean, I was absolutely blown away I know I've, I've been dancing around and I've been bouncing back and forth and I hope I didn't confuse you too much, but it is, it was an overwhelming experience. We were there for, I don't know, two, two and a half hours or so. Leif was so nice about the whole thing. And he did say when we were done, because he not only gave us a tour of the farm, but he took us around to other places too. He did say, you know, you guys feel free to walk around and, and do whatever you want to do. And so I could have taken video and stuff like that. But again, you know, I, I we had already taken up so much of his time invading his space and all of that. And we needed to get down to the resort and check in and all that. I just didn't do it. And that's probably something that I'm going to regret for a long time because I know it wouldn't have bothered Leif. He offered to let us do that. And I, I wish I had. But circumstances being what they were, I just didn't. But. I don't know that a video of the place would have really done it justice anyway because of the magnitude of the place. I mean, it's just, it's so big and there's so many fish everywhere. It would have taken all day long 
to to video every single vault and everything like that, it would have been way too much. So I, I I regret not doing it, but you know, it is what it is. Hopefully I can get Leif on the show and, and we can talk to him about some of this stuff. And uh he he did settle a couple of things for me that he didn't even know he settled. But there's been some ongoing debates within the the African cyclic community that I would kind of bring up to him just in passing and he would talk about it just in passing and and I would kind of sit there and nod my head like, yep, okay, that's what I thought. Or, oh, I was wrong about that. You know, it was pretty neat. And maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. But hopefully we can just talk about it direct with him. Perfect example of what I'm talking about is mixing Tanganyikans and Malawans. Okay? He had them mixed everywhere on the facility. So that's all I'm saying. I mean, that's one of those debates that is had within the African cyclic community that uh, that he kind of settled for me that day. And as far as I'm concerned, if Leif de Mason tells me something, I, I'm going to take that as gospel. I mean, that's just the way it is. There's a few people that I would say that about, and he's one of them. So the whole experience from the time we got there until the time we left was just unbelievable. I cannot thank him enough. There's no way he's ever going to listen to this, but I can't thank him enough for letting us invade his facility and and do what we did. It was a blast. And like I said, he spent the whole time there with us, showing us around. And, you know, this is a guy that's been in this business since the 70s, and he was still so excited to talk to us about these fish, to talk about their origins. He told us the whole story of how the DeMason I was named after him. He told us stories about Stuart Grant, about Ad Connick's, everybody that you've heard of in this industry. He was telling us stories about it was really cool. And I can't thank him enough. I really hope that I'm able to get him on the show again. I hope I didn't confuse things too much, but this is a really cool facility. And, and I promise if I'm ever able to get down there again, I'll take some videos next time. So <laughs> we had a great time there. And so now in continuation of the whole Florida theme, let's move on to John's world. And I'm going to talk to you about bloodline. John's world. All right. So this is the encore bloodline discussion here on John's world today, because I do have so much to talk about as far as what we saw on our vacation. This is something, this might be a long John's World because we saw so much that has to do with the show. And if you're a fan of Bloodline, then you will definitely get a kick out of this because we saw a ton of stuff. So first thing is first, we stayed, if you don't know this already, we stayed at the resort where the show was filmed, where the the central hub of the show was in the in the show. The family runs a, an inn that is on the water, which is called Rayburn House. And that's where most of the whole show takes place. It's centered around that resort. That's where we stayed in real life. That resort is called the Moorings, M-O-O-R-I-N-G-S. And it is on Isle Morada in the Florida Keys. And let me just tell you that when we got there, you know, we, we checked into our house. We stayed in a house that's on the resort, but it was not on the waterfront, which we actually were glad that it wasn't on the waterfront. Maybe I'll talk about that in a minute. But we stayed in one of the bungalows that was set back from the water, which we could still see the water. But so, of course, we checked in there first. And then the first thing we had to do 
was drop all of our stuff and run out there and see the main plantation house. And this resort was built on an old coconut farm. And, you know, the, the owner of the place bought it in the eighties. It was a rundown old piece of junk property, coconut farm. And he transformed it into this resort. I don't know his name. Shame on me, but he was a, a French windsurfer, professional windsurfer is the guy who bought this resort and he turned it into an absolute heaven. I, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. And basically everything that happened there, he did. He built the beach. There's no beaches in the Keys. Any, anytime you see a beach down there, it's a man-made beach. They bring the sand in to create this beach. So he made the beach. He built the houses. He did all that stuff and he did a fantastic job. So the first thing we did was run to the main house. And, you know, when you see it on TV, I, this is one of the first times where something where I, when I saw it in person, it looked bigger in person than it does on TV. The house is massive and it's absolutely gorgeous. Exactly like you see on TV. And the cool thing about it is the, the exterior of the house, they didn't really change anything. It's the chairs that you see Sissy Spacek sitting in on the front porch of that house are the chairs that are there. We sat in them. We took pictures in them. I mean, the tables that you see out there, the, the boat that's on the beach, everything, it's all there. It's exactly the way you see it on the TV show. And that was really cool. Now, some of the differences that we saw, uh, first of all, th this was a little disappointing, but I mean, it's television production. What are you going to do? We, we were not able to go into the big house because the big house, the interior of it is being renovated. And, but we were able to look in the windows. And one of the things that we noticed right off the bat was that the kitchen in this house was not the same as the one on the show. The show, if you've watched it, there's a lot of scenes that take place in the Rayburn house kitchen. And that kitchen is actually on a set that was in Homestead, which is where old world exotics is. And so the kitchen that's there is not the same one. And you know, big deal. It's not like I said, okay, let's leave. It's not the same kitchen, but the kitchen is in the back of the house and it, it just doesn't look anything alike, but the curved staircase and the big wide open gathering room that you see a lot in the show was right there and it all of its glory it was beautiful it, one thing that it was was empty they the production crew that did the show brought in all of their own furniture so everything that you see on the show every picture on the wall every table every chair they brought all that stuff in so i thought that was that was pretty fascinating but the shell of the house everything looks exactly the same and you know, we stood out in front of the house and I, I looked up at the porch and I said, look, that's where where uh, Robert Rayburn was standing up there playing his mandolin for the kids and all. That. I mean, it was just it's all right there and it's unbelievable. Now, the dock is another place that is exactly like you see it on the television show. And it, another little tidbit of information. We didn't know this until uh, we were actually on our way home. We found out this. If you're a fan of Zach Brown, which I'm a huge fan of Zach Brown, he did one of his videos at the moorings. If you've ever seen the Zach Brown video for Jump Right In, 
the, there is a scene of Zach with his guitar standing on a dock playing his guitar, and there's a hammock on the dock and everything. That's the dock at the moorings. And then there's a couple of more quick scenes that were filmed there. But uh, that dock is fantastic. I mean, it's exactly like you would expect to see it on the television show. And one of the another thing I regret doing, I was going to have some fun with this. And again, only people that have ever seen the show are only are going to understand what I'm talking about here. I was going to lay face down at the end of the dock, the beach side of the dock, and hang my arm over the edge and act like I was not passed out drunk and take a picture of myself that way. Now, if you remember from the show, it was in episode one. Danny woke up naked on that dock. So I wasn't going to do it naked, but I was going to do the, the picture and then put a black bar over that area. So it made it look like I was naked and laying in the exact spot that Danny woke up from his drunken stupor. But it was one of, the, one of those things that I just forgot to do and, and didn't end up doing it. But the main house there is fantastic. It is gorgeous. And to walk up to it, it is exactly like you saw on the television show, which is really cool. They have a couple of boats that are old, run down, broken down. They're just decoration now that are on the beach that you see in the show. And they're there. They were not put there by the production staff. They're there. We sat in them and, and you know, it was really cool. So it's exactly like you've seen it. And in fact, we were sitting outside one day. We were playing cards out on the beach and these young people came in. They weren't supposed to be there. This is a private area. These young people came in from, they were down for spring break or something and they were just flipping out because they were fans of the show and they were looking at it going, it's exactly like it looks on TV. It's really cool. And they were, they were blown away by it. And it was funny because these were college kids. And so to them we're old people. And so they walked up and the first thing, one of the girls pointed to us and turned back to her friends and said, Hey, look, it's the Rayburns. I was like, ah, go away, kid. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other places that we went that have to do with the show. We went to a bar. I'm not a drinker. If you don't know that about me, I don't drink any alcohol of any kind. But we went to a bar and we went there because we had to because it was one of the sets for the show. It's a bar called The Whistle Stop. And it's a rundown old bar, you know, mom and pop bar, sticky floors and everything else. But it was... It was the scene or the set for a couple of scenes in the show, and I'll tell you which ones those were. In one of the first couple episodes, it might have been episode two or three, when Danny went out on a date with Chelsea and they were playing pool. And Lisa and I played pool on the table that they play pool at. (laughs) I mean, you know, we're nerds, but we did. It was really cool uh, in this bar called The Whistle Stop. And then also... Towards the end of the series, when Danny and John went out and got really drunk and they were hitting on those chicks and stuff like that, and then John went out and threw up all over the parking lot, that was also filmed there. And we sat, and Lisa and I got our pictures taken in the seats that they sat in to film those scenes. So that was really cool. There's also a a beach cafe, which is right across the the island from the moorings it's owned by the moorings so we had like vip treatment there because we were guests of the resort but this this beach cafe is open to the public they did a lot of scenes there they did a couple of beach party scenes 
at the the beach cafe and uh, for the life of me i can't remember what it's called it's called like the miranda beach cafe or something like that or maybe Murata beach cafe absolutely gorgeous and let me just tell you this i have never been somebody that's been all that wild about watching a sunset i'm like whatever you know it doesn't matter to me but let me tell you down there that is what this beach cafe is known for is the view of the sunset because you're sitting they have tables on the beach where you sit there and eat your dinner in your bare feet with your feet in the sand absolutely beautiful and the view of the sunset is something i've never seen we got tons of pictures of it it was absolutely gorgeous but some of the best food that i've ever had and the cool thing is right next door to that they built this really fancy restaurant and the house or the building that they built for this restaurant is an exact replica of the main house at the resort. So it's almost like you, it's like you see the Rayburn house while you're at dinner. It's really cool. And it, we didn't go in there, but it's like, there's like a bar in there and a, and a really expensive restaurant, which, you know, we didn't go in there. But if you see some of the beach party scenes on the show, the best way I could describe it is you see rope lights that are hanging from the trees. All of the scenes that you see with the rope lights hanging from the trees were filmed at this beach cafe. And then there was also quite a few of the outdoor bar scenes where Danny would walk up and sit at a bar and he's like, it's like he's sitting at the bar at the beach. That was also filmed at this place. So we, we happened the first night we were there, we went to this cafe and it's, it's cafe, but it's really high end food. Where our waitress was a huge fan of the show. She's actually in the show. She was in it as an extra working at the bar. She told us all different kinds of stuff. She told us all the places to go. She's the one that told us to go to the whistle stop. And she also told us about the next place that I'm about to tell you. Uh, she was very knowledgeable in it. She watched the film crew. She was in it. She was very much into it. And she loved the show too. I don't remember her name, but she was very helpful. On day one, she helped us to navigate around the area to, to do the filming. So we were not able to find Dan, uh, Kevin's Marina. We couldn't find that. And apparently it's really hard to find that. The, the waitress knew where it was, but she tried to explain it to us. I mean, you go down there, there's certain areas of, of that area in the Keys where there's just marinas everywhere. So, you know, to find the right one was pretty difficult, but. She told us about all of these different spots. And, and one of the spots was a place called Ann's Beach, which is on the overseas highway. It's just like one of the few public beaches down there in the Keys. And it's like literally right on the side of the highway. You pull off and park right on the side of the highway and the beach is right there. We went there. That is where they filmed, uh, the, the big climax scene at the end with John and Danny. If somebody hasn't seen the show, I don't want to spoil that. And also the scene, every scene where Robert Rayburn, the dad, was kayaking, they filmed that there. And so the scene where he came into the beach and Danny was at the beach, I think it was episode one, maybe two, where he was saying, I, I would, I wanted to clear things up with you and say goodbye before you die. And then his dad fell, you know, all that stuff. Again, I don't want to spoil it. That whole scene was also filmed at Ann's Beach. So we saw that. We saw the Whistle Stop, the Beach Cafe, of course, the moorings. We went out on the dock. I mean, all of that 
we basically, I mean, there was a few places like the hospital and the sheriff's department and all that. You know, I don't even know where those were, but we saw just about everything. Now, one of the last places that I really wanted to see, and I don't exactly know why I wanted to see this, but I wanted to see The Shed. If you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about when I say The Shed. It's a big, big part of the show. I wanted to see The Shed because I just figured it was a shed that was on the property and you know, you go and see it and okay, there's the shed. That's, I call it Danny's shed. So we got there and I kept asking everybody that I saw that knew anything about the show, where's Danny's shed? And they would, Oh, it's, it's right over there. You just go over there and turn down there and go through the walkway and it's right there. And so I would go there and I'd look at a shed and I'd be like, I don't think that's it. That doesn't ring a bell to me. I don't think that's the right one. And so then I would come across somebody else, like somebody that works there at the resort. Hey, Where's the shed that Danny stored his drugs? Oh, it's over there. People kept leading me all over the place. And finally, I ended up speaking with a woman that was like running the place. She was, you know, in charge of the entire resort. And she said, oh, you're not going to see that shed because the production crew actually built it on site and they did all of the scenes and then they tore it down and took it out. So I was looking desperately for Danny's shed and it's just not there. So <laughs> I couldn't see it, but I can't think of any other places. I mean, there are other small, like little scenes that we saw. We're like, Oh, that I know exactly where that is. And you know, we were there. One of the things, um, the, the interesting thing about the main house there at the resort is that the front of the house and the beach side of the house look identical. And so there's a lot of scenes where you see it and, and you're, you're assuming that they're filming from the beach side, the, you know, the big show side of the show of the house, excuse me, but it's not, it's actually the front yard. And there was a couple of scenes and I, I, I can't recall exactly what they were, but basically any scenes that were filmed in the driveway of the main house was actually on the opposite side of the beach. And there were a couple of trees out there. You can see them in the show. I can't, I called them the sleepy hollow trees. I don't know what kind of trees these were, but they're the most wicked looking looks straight out of Ichabod crane, sleepy hollow. Like the, the headless horseman is going to come out of the trunk of it. it they're, they're so creepy looking. <laughs> I don't even know what kind of trees they were. And I wanted to ask the people that work there, you know, what are those monstrosity looking things? They are on the front of the property. And again, you know, if you look in the background of some of the scenes, you can definitely see it, but just an unbelievable experience while we were there going to all of these places. Not only were we in a tropical paradise, but also the adventure of going around and seeing these places where the filming took place and then wondering, you know, is that this, is that, that it was a lot of fun. We did have some arguments. <laughs> My brother-in-law and I, we would get into it like, no, I see that. No, that's there. No, no. It was a lot of fun and we had a great time with it. I, I wish we could have seen everything, but unfortunately, you know, these, these production crews are so brilliant with, you know, recording a kitchen and making you believe that it's actually in the main house, but it's not. It's in a set that's 60 miles away. That's really cool the way they did that. And from what I understand, breaking news, people breaking news, 
they have already reserved that resort for a season two. And I believe it records in September and October, uh, which is, I guess, the slow season for them anyway. Um, if you go on the Moorings website and try to book a date, it will not let you book in those days. And they actually have a building, which we did not go to, but it's on the property. There is a building that is dedicated to the production. So there might be a couple more seasons that are filmed at the Moorings. So that's really exciting. One of my favorite shows to come out in a long time that does not feature a superhero. And I couldn't, I can't speak of that show any more highly than I have. If you have not watched Bloodline, first of all, I haven't spoiled anything here for you. So don't worry. Watch that show. Trust me. Forget about the scenery. Forget about how beautiful it is. It is a fantastic show. And I promise you, if you end up watching it like me, and you talk to the right people, you never know. You might go down there and stay at the resort. Lisa made the joke before. She's like, you ought to start talking to your sister about Hawaii and how beautiful that is. Maybe she'll take us there. But we're not going to do that. We wouldn't even let her do that. But I can't speak enough about the trip. I can't speak enough about that resort. It was, without a, without any doubt, the most beautiful area that I saw in the Keys. And I'm not being biased. I'm being serious. That resort is unlike anything else that we saw in the Keys. It's just magnificent, beautiful, and that's all I'm going to say. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you next week. 